welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that does not recommend building structures or gods or perhaps parliaments out of just pure gold. It's not efficient. It's not economical. Mm -hmm. It's going to lead to a lot of theft. And I imagine it's hard to polish, Amanda, that much gold. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And every, like, I think it also just looks tacky. It is. It's not a look for me. It's true. Now, we're in the land of future space. Super future space. <laughs> or maybe past space? I don't know. It's, who knows? But we're we're in far off space. So maybe the aesthetics are just different there. But bit cleaner, a bit simpler. But yeah, having one of any color in your living space, it's the bad. It's the wrong call. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And speaking of just the impracticalities alone, I mean, that's to say nothing of getting all of those resources and keeping them somewhere awful decision making here by the parliament yeah and having to like watch all the visitors who come to the planet right like yeah maybe maybe in that universe or that sector of the universe that is the most common mineral or something it's possible i guess oh yeah like it doesn't actually cost them anything there yeah that just means john is double de fool <laughs> D- doubly die fool, I believe. Um, if you have no idea why we're talking about parliaments made of gold, it is because you have struck upon a book club part two episode for the graphic novel The Inkle or The Inkal, depending on your pronunciation. That's by Hodorowski and Mobius. This, as I just said, is a part two episode. So today on the podcast, we'll be analyzing and discussing the entire back half of that graphic novel. So if you're not looking for spoilers, you are in the wrong place. Check out the feed. We have a book recommendation up already. And part one is up so if you're looking for that stuff please go find it we are as i mentioned the lightly literary podcast we have social media accounts that you can follow at instagram and facebook which are just at the lightly literary podcast all one word so check us out there we post updates um some things to promote the books we're doing and just reminders of what we're reading so if you want to keep up that's the place to go um before we jump in the entire thing's up for spoiling i don't even know if i could spoil this amanda i don't (laughs) can you spoil something this uh overwhelming i guess we'll find out we're gonna try yeah well i mean we'll try (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure we're gonna leave out a lot of details too just by the nature of this beast so let's dive in part two that we're going to begin discussing begins with the section i believe called what is above or is it what yes. it's what's above okay what's above um, yeah, what... let's talk about a couple of starting chapters we're going to hear discuss the vitaville h2o through the medusa strategy early sections so we're on aqua end here in this part of the this part of the graphic novel the water-based prison planet though hey surprise it's really not a prison planet is it is kind of a savior planet a little bit of a utopia there under the water <laughs> um there have been people People apparently who have survived by kind of combining with the local animals, which they call medusas. They look like giant jellyfish, though. They, they call them that, but they're just enormous jellyfish, like building-sized. And yeah, you kind of fuse with them and become part of their body, and that's what people are doing. So <laughs> anyway, our band of heroes, the crew from the first half of the book, that same, is a group of seven, six? It's a group of, uh, let's see here, their saloon, Metabaron, Anima, Anima's sister, John DeFool, Depot, and uh, Wolfhead. So that's seven. Okay. 
Yeah, so the our crew of seven. Though with Saloon, it's hard because he's also the ink all for a lot of the book. <laughs> but he's a kind of, he's giant got, ship most of the yeah, time. <laughs> he's got or a tiny one, <laughs> which we'll get to, or yeah. blood or blood cell sized. Anyway, yeah, that crew. We're just gonna call them the Band of Heroes. They meet up with Rymo there, um, and the. The Techno Technos, in the meantime, by the way, are hatching new plans to destroy the universe. They've got their dark egg plot. They're, they want to eat the suns of the universe and turn the universe black. So that's all happening. We've we've now got our two groups assembled, basically. They're zones. Um, back on Earth, or let's just call it Ter-21, ter- ter- there's a council of old dudes that got kind of destroyed or unlocked when the core of the Earth was destroyed or unlocked. Um, do you remember what they're called? I didn't bother to look up the name. It's the, you know, it's like the robe wearing old guys in the crystals. No, I just called them like the crystal forest mages or the yeah. crystal forest. I went with Council Olden. of Old Dudes, so yours is more precise. I'm just <laughs> mentioning that they are, they, they, one of them stayed behind to kind of guide the people of Terror 21 or Earth. Um, to, and kind of is guiding the children into rebuilding civilization. I only mention that because it comes up later. Otherwise, it's not the most critical. It's a, it's a rather unimportant subplot, you'd think. But it does come up later. So th- that's what's going on back there. Meanwhile, John is obsessed with Anima and tries to court her, and that fails. <laughs> and they're really just making plans at this point in the story. Like, the techno-technos try and do a counter-spy situation with a guy, and they try and, like, implant some poison into his head, and they're trying... So it's they're just trying to defeat one another um by making up armies or or planting spies any initial impressions of the of aqua end or any of these these plots going on yeah the (laughs) so with the with the aqua end uh with the medusa the the initial like reveal that there's this medusa thing i was like what the hell <laughs> oh yeah it's gone full fantasy mode at this point though it's just yeah merging with local wildlife all that yeah it was that was uh really surprising but what i really liked about this section too is that uh there's a lot of uh surprise like reveals here and there's uh which actually helps to build up suspense for later because there's all these different conflicts that are like but you think this, but no, wait, there's this. And, and, and I actually, I like the twists and turns that the story has um, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we were expecting that they would just die on this water world, for example. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But actually, nope. And it actually turns out that uh, these Medusae... Sure. I mean, we get to make it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember they had the the AE at the end for the plural. Sure, sure. Um anyway, these uh jellyfish like creatures um are like these humongous things and they have an entire world based in them and everything and there's like a hidden colony. I thought that was so amazing and cool. And then on um, Tur 21, going tying it back and, and, and like throwing us back there and showing that there's um, there's a lot of destruction. Like all the adults have been murdered. Yeah, but or the, mostly. The children, there's a, at yeah. some point they narrate a percent into that, but it's just, it's like the vast majority. Yeah, most, especially men. Um, but really the only survivors being the children um i thought that was um a nice little touch and then like with the council uh bickering and everything so all these conflicts and these things that you think oh will be solved through 
you know, simple means or whatever. Actually, they, it's complicated betrayals upon betrayals and sudden reveals about different worlds and stuff. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, the reintroduction of Terra 21, we can just call it Earth at this point because I'm going to yeah. give up on that. But <laughs> it's clearly Earth, Earth-ish, the most Earth-like place they go to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think it it reinjected that kind of grounding that the story needed, or I guess I should just say it's regrounded it in a sense, which I appreciated. There's just some scenes, which Moby just continues to draw excellently, of like crowds getting onto ships, trying to escape. It's very, you know, Titanic, escape the lifeboat, Titanic vibes. Um, I will say that some of the imagery with the Council of Old Dudes, the Crystal Men, Suncor Crystal Guys, uh, do you remember that shot, or that, I shouldn't call it a shot since it's not a film, but that little panel of them trying to like reacclimate, I think they call them pilgrims, like get the humans going again. It says form a new alliance. Soon the children will learn how to sow, how to reap, how to live. And then it's very Jesus like. It's like they're the stars. These these old men are gonna be the stars and they will guide the pathway of the mm-hmm. new you know, of these new people kind of I don't know, recolonizing the land of the earth, like the surface world. It, it was good. I like the waves of grain imagery. I thought that was very wholesome. It, it made it seem not so bleak, but then it's kind of messing with some religious stuff to me there, following stars, mythic. I, I think the book is comfortable working in a kind of mythic mode, but I wonder if holistically we took out the all the religious imagery of this, if it would be coherent, I guess. Did, did that mm-hmm. feel like... Because those guys don't really matter, and by the end, they, they kind of do-ish a little. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. did you, what did you make of that moment, and did, did it matter, <laughs> is I guess my question. Uh, I found it to be kind of, um, the reintroduction of them into, into the text, it was like, almost uh, spiritual in... In its way, and, and almost like they were kind of trying to make a, a utopian society. And so I took all of that as yeah. kind of like social and philosophical, um, as a social and philosophical like injection of the authors, perhaps. Like, especially when we see them again uh, uh, shortly afterwards um, with the media star. And how like right. he really does not like the me- like the the crystal guys don't like the media and like try to destroy any connection between the people and their their holovids. Yeah, it's um, a it, this is an incredibly skeptical book where the media is concerned. Yeah, Which even when it finally about, well because it works yeah. for them in the end though we're jumping ahead of ourselves for sure but yeah anyway yeah yeah that's the thing that I was going to talk about actually with the next section yeah, of the media it succeeds. stuff. For sure. Yeah. Feel free to pick it up then. Okay. Um, so I'll just go ahead and quickly run through the summary and then we'll talk about the media again. <laughs> of course. Um, this is for the chapter's approach through psychovirus. Um, Deful trains with the training uh, with a fighting robot, Meta Baron's fighting robot to be exact, oh, yeah. to prepare for the Berg's big games. Kind of Hunger Games, which is to fight other humans who are then eaten by the Bergs and the Victor, supposedly, to impregnate their queen while the rest of the crew send off the Medusa to fight the Black Eggs. Difool yeah, also broadcasts this one. Yeah. Difool <laughs> <clears throat> um, also broadcasts a message sharing the Techne's Black Egg plans. 
inciting intergalactic rebellions, except for Undie Fool's home planet, where everything is hollowed absent as the Crystal Forest priests guess help build a kind of farm utopia for the human survivors yeah when Daifool reaches the bird queen she transforms to look like anima to seduce him and disintegrate him but Daifool offers the inkle in exchange for his life and for the bird forces to attack technogia um however Daifool still loves anima and she him apparently and the queen gets pissed and disintegrates Daifool anyway um, when they reach Technogia. It's okay, though, because he comes back through the power of a muck and meta baron sudden love story. Oh, yeah. That's a quick one. It's in a, there's some, you know, very efficient storytelling throughout this entire thing. That, that was one. That was a head turner for sure. Even by this yeah. book's incredibly low plot logic standards. I mean, on the floor low. <laughs> that yeah. was still, I guess it's not plot. Well, it was plot as much as character development, too. It's the bar right. here is in the dirt there. The bar is raised <laughs> a, but a centimeter off the ground. <laughs> yeah. I like I like how generous you are with the term efficient. Um. <laughs> yeah, have they had they ever. I mean, I should do the scholarship, of course, to go figure this out. Had they ever really even spoken before, except for their initial deal to? And she almost killed him that one time. But like, right, she tries to kill him at the beginning. Yeah, since yeah. their very initial meeting, had they ever even spoken on the page? Since nope, then. Uh, it was just a, a relationship of betrayal at the beginning. But I guess all great uh, love stories start that way, right? I mean. Yeah, and with with some interaction. Yeah, I just prefer them to talk maybe on a page or they probably do. There's a lot of talking anyway. Yeah. Um, And then the the queen leaves with the Berg forces. We find out that the emperoress has become overtaken by the darkness through a psychovirus, which was introduced by the guy who was actually a, a double, triple agent. I don't know. who knows with him (laughs) yeah it's at least double that's for certain (laughs) he was unconscious i believe he claims for this insertion the techno people make a big deal of that you know right um so anyway yeah let's talk bird games this is a scope or a a scope rather a trope a a trope in big in scope (laughs) that has become (laughs) i don't know like overworked in the time since this was published obviously we've survived the hunger games phenomenon but there have been other things recently especially in ya that involve here kids youths of some kind though these aren't survive this competition and get a reward you know it's deadly did you enjoy this rendition because i think it's another example of how the scope and pacing of mobius's art works to its advantage i thought there were so many brilliant shots and then this also is the rare example i don't think this graphic novel makes enough use of it frankly um though i guess if you abuse it you know the effect wears off but of like full panel or half panel shots i think the one introduced Using the pyramid with the Berg audience is kind of just you know steroided out Colosseum views. <laughs> it's yeah. like the the Roman Colosseum, but on the absolute utmost power. It also reminds me of the Star Wars shot of from the um, prequel trilogy where they do a little Colosseum fight, and this looks almost copy pasted from that. That's like copyright infringement. Close, how <laughs> accurate it looks, or how similar rather it looks. But there's yeah, I enjoyed. 
Again, overhead shots is very Waldo-like, the art, but when John is the only one in futuristic gear and all the other people look like they just got picked up from 1000, you know, AD, and they're, yeah. they're like, they've got maces and shimitars or whatever, you know, basic spears, rudimentary spears, and John looks like he just came out of Tron. I thought it was such a funny <laughs> little bit of, like, characterization. That Also, on 195, I'll, this is the last image I'll kind of call attention to, this is the Bergs are kind of commenting on the games. There's a lot of action, obviously. I truly did not pick up the ink hole was in him. I, for some reason, just missed the art of that. But it shows the pyramid, like, covered in blood as they start to ascend. You know, it's like you can yeah. start to see it kind of bleeding down and everything. I thought it was pretty vivid. I, Yeah, it, the action scenes, the huge crowds navigating that, pacing that, to me, is still the highlight of the second half. That did not change for me. Yeah. the um, I, I liked the... Here we get more, actually, I, I think we get more of uh, DeFool's personality as well, like his reluctance to get really involved in it and stuff, and it's like the ankle has to force him forward, which is kind of a thing that is a constant in this novel, which is a nice thing that I can kind of like hang on to, knowing that at least with DeFool, he's a consistent character who is a coward and <laughs> is uh-huh, uh-huh. insanely selfish and <laughs> kind of dumb. <laughs> did you think that the back half of the story ramped that up? Cause by the time he got to his third kind of remember in the first half, when he finally breaks down and is like, this is insane. This is getting out of hand. I'm not cut out for this. I don't, I remember praising it because it was the first time he really had shown emotion. Do you remember chatting about yeah. that in part one? Yeah. They just go mm-hmm. back to that like four to like, it's it's as if they heard my comment in the first pod and then in the second half they're like, yeah, we can just do that four more times. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah, his character clearly has no room for growth and is, but yeah, in the first half I took it as signs of subtlety. In the second half it's more used like a cudgel. A kind of characterization cudgel to just be like, yeah, remember who he is? So that disappointed me a bit. Just his, he, I feel like he, they could have even copy pasted some of his lines. I know they didn't, but it just felt that similar. <laughs> I think that that's very true. Um, and, and I wasn't sure if that was in direct contrast to the rest of the chaos around him. Like yeah. the, the unpredictability of the situations that he's put into and of like just, we never know really what's going to happen, but we can right, always right. rely on the fact that the fool will fight doing the right thing until anima tells him to do it. Right. Um, right. And, and that's so. the, they go back to that too. I'll yeah. also comment on this briefly just cause it can't go. I know we made fun of the meta barons romance at that. Also, it never comes up again. Does it ever? With Amok or Amok? Yeah, no, it doesn't. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's just the it's one such time. An it, absurd yeah. plot device. John and Animus, frankly, is the same on the page though, because the last yeah. we saw them, she, he was she was rejecting him really resoundingly. I think hits him like in the face, and he's yeah, she when he's hitting the crap on her. Out of him. Yeah, in in Aqua End, and then when he survives the mission, they come together and they you know they kiss and they love each. They say they love each other, or whatever. I just it's not quite. Think of famous romances between a roguish figure, which I'm pretty sure is like, that's a pretty common fantasy in that genre. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, a bad boy who you, you're you the only one who can tame him, it, so to speak, however you want to phrase it. This, I, I feel like, is trying that, but John is neither bad boy enough and Anima, there's not one single moment where she sees him do something she likes one time. Yeah. 
she just yeah. used his DNA to produce a child, uh, which is co- just coincidental and random. That's just all happenstance, right? There's nothing to do with him. That's just a randomness of DNA percentages. So I also thought that moment when they dis- when he gets disintegrated and is killed, such a non-starter dramatically. I was just kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, he's okay. Why does she? Uh, what? And anyway, just sloppiness all around. I still think in some of the relationship and character stuff here definitely <laughs> the characterization yeah. in in this graphic novel is uh yeah not uh generously not, not the best. <laughs> generously you could say archetypal but even within that you would hope they would do a little better like with we already mentioned the repetition in the plot with john repetition in some of his moments of breaking down there's mm-hmm. he has a couple subtle things i liked um stealing the gold from the city i thought was a funny little just a little sight gag basically but um yeah, I don't know. Sloppy all around. Mm. All right, we're going to continue the story. Inhuman through I Saw You Such As You Are. So we left the Emperor, as you mentioned, being overcome by darkness. Gasp, the true darkness has completely overtaken the androgene Emperorus. So now it officially has to be stopped. It turns it into a twisted kind of monster-looking thing. Again, John has had enough. He com- complains. He goes to mope on Aqua, and he's once again over it. He does not want to be involved in plots anymore, does not want to save the universe. <laughs> he makes his priorities clear. He wants to drink whiskey, have a... I guess we'll just say the term though. I don't want to. I don't want to have to trigger warning this whole episode for saying homeo whore. I think we're whatever. That's what it says. That's what it's called. And he just that's wants what they're to. Called, yeah. Yeah. He <laughs> just wants to have his uh, free time of debauchery. So he complains. Ultimately, of course, Anima convinces him to help the group. Though, again, in an absurd thing, they basically talk him into a suicide mission to go to the techno place, also hilariously called the War Star, which is just... (laughs) Between that and some of the imagery from this, knowing that this came out, I'm pretty sure before Star Wars, right? Uh, This one was written... It was published at least in 1981. Okay. I should... Let's just check it now, then. Star Wars... I'm going to do it. I'm not cutting this. Star Wars movie (laughs) release... Let's check this here. Oh, no. Star Wars wins. Okay. So, yeah. Knowing that, then, it's absurd in the other direction. <laughs> One of these directions is absurd, and that's, it's absurd that this would copy so much things from Star Wars, because Star Wars was 1977. So, mm-hmm, anyway. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Whoever was plagiarizing from whom, you got to knock it off. <laughs> anyway. So, he's going to do a solo assault on the War Star, the Heart of the Technos, and their leader, which, how are you pronouncing that? The, te- the Techno Centraur? Centraur? Yeah, I was saying Centrar. Centrar, yeah. <laughs> if it's a real word, I did not bother to look it up. That's all right, is lazy uh, readers or myself. Anyway, the, in the meantime, as John's trying to pull that subterfuge, the Intergalactic Parliament agrees to send aid, so they're going to go like help the Bergs launch that attack. So the Bergs are there fighting. Then it's just total chaos. I think artistically, the book really shines in these moments, of course. There's battles unfolding inside, outside. Uh, at some point, John gets taken over by darkness, but the Incal, which is hiding in him again, they've done that trick again, mm-hmm. <laughs> manages mm-hmm. to escape and then just starts fighting inside the War Star. Like, again, lasers everywhere, fights everywhere. There's a massive battle that I'm not going to tell the details of because who cares? There's complicated things that happen during the battle. Eventually, though, in terms of imagery and thematic development, story development, the darkness and the Incal now is in the form of a child saloon, innocent, blonde-haired little boy. They have an archetypal battle, so they finally do have a f- seemingly final battle inside the War Star, and the Incal appears to win. So there is a, a sense of finality here, even though it's not over. Yeah. Um, 
but of course it's not. Uh, <laughs> oh no. What uh, what I found as I was reading through all of this, like I know, like the artwork has been like phenomenal throughout, but on page two thirty seven, the um, that it's a giant panel, right? The, the entire page is just one panel, and that panel in particular struck me more than any other panel that we've seen so far. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's because the the chaos is so perfect. I mean, this is uh, an invasion. It's an attack, right? So there's um, all this, like, dust and dirt, and there's um, people flying around that don't even p- aren't paying attention to each other. There's, like, some... It's a lot of action. You can see all this action and all this destruction and all this dirt and grime. And But what really struck me as well was just the colors that he uses that Mobius uses and the the colors in particular here it was just like something that is not what you would imagine um normally when you think of uh fighting so when you think of like movies where you see a bunch of like high techy um attacks and stuff like that so if you imagine Star Wars if you think about Star Wars um yeah, sure. The um, the lightsabers and the guns have lights, but everything else is very gray and white and black, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in in Mobius's picture, everything has a color. I mean, there's like bright oranges, bright greens, bright blues, bright mm-hmm. everything is just so vibrant, which just seems to like really clash with the the dirt and grime and the chaos of everything else. And I just, I thought that this was a phenomenal panel and it just yeah. really struck me. Yeah. For being in fanciful for fancified future spaceships of Im- unimaginable tech, a lot of Browns and greens too, in his imagined, yeah. you know, I don't dystopia, utopia future. <laughs> I don't know right. how to read it. And those binaries do not work. I don't think with this book, but um, <laughs> maybe a utopia in the end. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the, the, just the palette. You're right. Is very sophisticated. Did you enjoy the transition that I'm going to switch? Uh, let me switch my thoughts here to the archetypal battle then. Cause in call clearly some kind of force for good darkness, trying to end all life. I, some of the pen work, for example, when they fight, start to fight, there's a couple close-ups on the face of the Techno Centrar, who's clearly just inhabiting, you know, that's like, the, he's the epitome of darkness at that point. Right. A couple big smiles and close-ups, you don't see his eyes. It felt a little to me, I mean, it's meant to be, I think, quite intimidating, frightening. It felt a little, I don't know, I got some sexual energy off of it. I, I'm not sure if that's exactly the reading that was supposed to happen. Saloon, at that point, too, is like the most unblemished, perfect-looking, young, pure child of the sun, just like absurdly right. innocent-looking uh, and in comparison, of course, to that. It felt very leering or something, the smile that he gave, Mobius gave the that leader of the darkness. So I thought that was a pretty potent like contrast between them even if it does become absurd really quickly and even yeah. metaphorical in a way if that makes sense mm-hmm. um also shout outs to the a couple of longer taller panels when he's when they start fighting he rips his helmet off and it kind of melts away really good just use of the shapes there it like looks very wet or something it's like looks disgusting and he rips off that helmet and so i thought the transition there was really interesting like it's it's definitely a little bit of a cleaner presentation when they laser beam fight each other and it's more horrifying and 
terrifying than like the other big battles i don't know i don't feel the fear in them maybe because they're so detailed and so well drawn this felt a little more like frightening we'll also we'll have a chance to discuss at the very end of this book some stuff that's like really grotesque and frightening but this is a early signs of that i think yeah the um that particular panel that you were first describing with the 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 smile the the bad guy smile yeah. um yeah if you look at his hand too it's covered in hair and it's got long nails it's almost like a monster's hand yeah. and stuff too so like the details that went into that to make the subtle things about this person seem really truly terrifying and grotesque like i yeah. yeah that was really great that was that was really well done especially to the the cleanliness of saloon there's not like a hair out of place on saloon anywhere yeah, he's got yeah. like right his legs are just like beautifully shaved and like no hair anywhere except for on his head it's like yeah the complete opposite yeah it's so funny yeah well tell us how this battle ends then amanda how's it wrap up Oh, man. Let's see. Okay. So, um, the Intergalactic Senate has met up again to fight and argue politics, of course. Um, The final Medusa is killed, um, and the darkness in the Emperor threatens to kill everyone. But then, Saloon saunters up and just immediately kills the Emperor and kind of contains the darkness, which he could have done to save all those Medusa, but he didn't. But whatever. (laughs) But there must be there must be a final plan to fully rid the world of darkness, and that plan is the Theta Dream. So the president offers. Remember the president, the uh, the necro droid president. um, All that's left is like a part of his final form, which is just the head part. The president offers to help the group with using the media and the famous broadcaster we've seen in previous depictions of the media in the novel to manipulate the human species into going to sleep. It succeeds! Well... Except that fool has to go going back. To. I mean, there's, yeah, no, there's no version of this where it doesn't succeed. Everything they've done has succeeded. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, we know that it will succeed. Um, Daifool has to go back to the Berg planet since there are 78 million humans ignoring the propaganda. And he finds himself, as he makes it there, surrounded by his very own children, who are all adults and look exactly like him. Yeah, they get birthed as adults, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Um, From an egg. (laughs) But they're Mm -hmm. here. Um, Everyone on the planet hates the proto-father, which is a fool, and the proto-mother... And in the final panel, it is revealed that Daifool is, in fact, the proto-father when the Garbage King, you guys remember the Garbage King from Terror 21. Not in a million um, years would I have predicted that. It, remember I went on a little tangent about how evocative they were, and I was like, ah, they're never going to use them again. Like, this, yeah. th- it discards the cool ideas it has. I, in a million years, would not have predicted he would have come back. Ever. But he does! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's the one who recognizes DeFool as the original and points him out to the security force to be arrested and tried. Mm. Um, so. Uh, the the, the DeFool twist. This is, I think, the closest the book can actually have to something we could call a twist. Because... 
it actually earned it with the references earlier about like the, it's a prophecy. They need to bring in this air of peace to the Bergs. And then, of course, this is actually revealed after the fact, which would have maybe given the twist away. It's revealed earlier that the Bergs were a, pro, a race 20 whatever thousand years ago because she made it with a bird person. So it's like, right. oh, that's the bad evolution happened because whoever won the last battle in the Coliseum was a bird. But so that actually worked as a twist. Of course, here's the part where maybe characterization wise, it, it harms the otherwise cool images the story wants to mess with, which is all these defools and the, you know, the grummy, grimy worlds they live in because they're all assholes and they just want to have sex and drink whiskey or, or whatever debauched stuff the, no, the novel wants to indict. This is where it falls apart, though, because I haven't paid much attention to John's character traits. I get that he's a bit of a bum and, like, is a reluctant sort of hero person, but to, like, see it, the mirror turned back on himself, it's not like there was that clear of an image there before. So to yeah. have a mirror turned back at it and have this big twist of a moment, be like, oh, gosh, don't you see the depravity of it all and the 78 billion of these? It was just kind of it fell a little flat because I just didn't think he was that well realized in the first place. So seeing mm-hmm. that twist was just kind of like, oh, this is this was actually kind of cleverly laid and could have been really interesting or great. But instead, yeah. I just kind of shrugged and was like, yeah, th- this there's some like funny there's a couple funny moments in this, but that's it. <laughs> did you yeah. react similarly, or did you like it? I mean, I I thought that the initial reveal was pretty funny because he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna have my um, homeo horror, my or whatever," and he like grabs the first woman and turns her around. Right, and he's like right. looking at himself, and he's like, "What the crap is this?" Yeah, yeah. I, I liked that reveal because I was like. It it took me a second. It took me a second because I saw the some similarities, but it until I think the next page, I was not fully on board. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty hilarious. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I I like the idea behind that, but yeah, it would have been if if we had uh, better characterization of of Defoul other than the the blunt like hey he's he's a screw up and he's intensely selfish i mean if i don't know it could have been more it could have been more nuanced for sure yeah it just didn't it feels like he's either not in it enough or is in it too much and and when they put him in it too much if that's the criticism which i think it might be for me it's that nothing interesting or new ever happens with him so it's kind of like i start to forget what he's like because he does so many of the same things so often (laughs) it's weird it's almost like you forget things that are right in front of your face or something so it's just kind of like oh yeah he also there's not is there even a scene in this book except for the opening very opening of the book is there a scene when he actually just is drinking a whiskey? You know, it's just like he it's like all talk, no show or something. That's part, maybe part of the problem. It's like we don't get to see him being a degenerate ever. He's always doing the hero bit. So it's like do a little more of the showing of the degenerate nature of his you know behavior and morality, I guess. Maybe that's yeah. part of it, too. Yeah. Um, only at the very beginning do we see him actually visit and like he does have that interaction at the brothel very first thing yeah yeah Yeah. but that's the very first thing and then that like that's it everything else is like (laughs) yeah yeah it's like as soon as the adventure story it's like as soon as the adventure genre takes over it never looks back to any other it's like it forgot every other part of storytelling except for new adventure new setting new action it's like every other thing just goes away it's so bizarre in its kind of construction um 
flip to is your 256 the same as mine where he's explaining the theta dream um my 256 is in the in slash whatever saloon is explaining Oh, um, 257 with the, with the beautiful like gold bot like the bottom panels are all yeah. gold and he's like in a purple robe yeah well that page the next page to fool stripping the walls like those basically three or four pages uh, yeah. amanda mm-hmm. simply take in this isn't even the high-minded criticism or some unique insight but this is how you know your storytelling medium is failing you look at all the goddamn dialogue on these like four pages that is <laughs> That is totally absurd. Lot. That's like, why are you in this medium right now? It makes no sense. The The crowd, they also go back to this a lot, Hodorowski, and I don't know if it's them together or whatever. I know he wrote and Mobius drew, but they go to the crowd shouting out different things so you can get a little sampling. I'm going to call it the crowd sample. They love this trope. They love doing a little crowd sample just to show you the chaos of the multitudinous opinions or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like that on the same pages as this expository dump of the theta dream and there's a new we've got a new plot device for you to keep the mm-hmm. conflict churning or whatever it it all coalesced on these couple pages and i think it almost broke me like i can promise you i did not read all those dialogue boxes i can assure you of that like i'm not sure which ones i read and didn't enough to understand the story <laughs> but i just need to point out i'm not sure if you listeners out there will have the same pages as we had numbers i mean but that's just absurd. Like, what are we doing? Just take the page off and do a paragraph to explain the heroes have a new plan. That they do the literal Star Wars goddamn crawl. Just give me a crawl, <laughs> and then let's get back to the actual medium at hand. Because that's like that just feels like broken to me. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> Who approved it's those pages? So many text boxes, and I read every single one of them. Can I tell you exactly what they all said? No, because they were all often pretty much the same thing anyway i got the idea pretty quickly without needing yeah it's absurd all those text boxes it's yeah. absurd it's so much it's way too much and it's funny because like in some in some cases you're like man i really wish that like there was a little bit more of an explanation here then then you get to these spaces where i feel like that much exposition really isn't necessary and then they just like go all out with that and i'm like Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> yeah, I it's it is a funny balance because some things like I thought the Theta Dream, for example, probably a little underexplained given its crucial kind of nature. Th- given that it's the final solution and it's introduced with like pages to go in the whole story or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's just the nature of the way they pace this. I, I think earlier in the book, some of the because we were in one place, Terror Twenty One, some of the more rapid fire, subtle things. I was willing to kind of embrace or even love as it got more intergalactic in scale. It felt more and more absurd. Like they just kept bailing themselves out or something. I mean, that's such an easy plot criticism and it's obvious too. like any other reading of this plot is just factually incorrect. It's just wrong. If someone said to me, no, it's, this was like correctly paced or what, like that's just wrong. I don't know how else to say it's not even, it's not even a subjective interpretation of the art. It's like, on a page-to-page basis, given 
the plot versus character development like side by side like this is incorrectly paced like it's insane <laughs> it's more of an yeah. abstract thing then again just to get laden then with such moments of heavy doubt like just give me provocative images that are interesting in cool settings what are what is happening it's like you don't even know what makes your thing good it really felt like one of those moments of like oh am I having a totally different enjoyment reaction to a piece of art than the creator thought maybe I would <laughs> right because uh, it it was just like i don't think you get what is good about this what's making this good <laughs> right. if you're doing a page like this or four pages mm-hmm. yeah yeah brutal um i also um wanted to quickly talk about the the media depiction here just because the media yeah. has been is something that's been really important to well to the to the plot and for sure and also to um as far as like i think they're some of the thematic ideas that they wanted to to come you know really get across so mm-hmm. I, I found it interesting that like the media is really like at the beginning it's it's like this terrible propaganda tool that's like useless and all these um people are in their conaps watching and they mm-hmm. just um, have kind of wasted their lives. They're just so glued to the TV and like all this chaos is going on outside their door and they're just like, yeah. oh, what a cool, what a cool show today is having. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, that's so amazing. Um, <laughs> but then they come to rely on the propaganda in order to get to, in order to be successful in the Theta dream. Anyway, and the way that, and it, it's so funny. The propaganda is just so simple. They just use the 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 most famous dude, and he just sings a song about getting into the Theta Dream, and it's like super repetitive and super simple, and people yeah. people fall for it and stuff. Um, I just yeah. found that so fascinating. That it's like making fun of the media and the way that we really rely on the media for like our sense of reality and entertainment but that also is kind of like impair it's an imperative tool as well for getting certain things done and to be successful as a society in a way yeah yeah definitely the fact that it came around at the very end and used it in that really sloppy proto mother father turn let's turn the corner i think am i spoiling the next section i think i am but it doesn't matter i'm about to we're about to talk about the plot anyway but yeah the fact that it gives up there and just uses it to quickly solve the 78 billion person problem it just felt like another moment for me to like almost brush it off my shoulders and be like they don't care i i shouldn't care more than they did about making this make sense (laughs) like clearly i don't know if it's coherent you know i'm not sure if this has a coherent vision with specific political things i think it's satires or criticisms should perhaps not be taken at the deepest in the deepest sense or something i don't Mm -hmm. i guess i don't know if there's another reading waiting us awaiting us here yeah you know the early usages of tv it's such an obvious satire because how many times does character in the front half say just stay safe in there like ignore the world right don't pay attention right. just stay right. you know thank god you guys aren't out here it's a mess out here just keep just live in ignorance and it was such a you know a little indictment of a little such a repeated indictment of those people but yeah then of course it's just at the end be like no but when we need it though it's it's fine <laughs> yeah it's super yeah. useful as a tool yeah. Yeah. Sloppy. All right, let's wrap this story up. <laughs> Final section. We're going to go through the circles of nightmare. And I think, I don't know if that's the last section, but we're, I'm going to finish up the story here. So John is on the, the, the in the universe of DeFools. 
Uh, his pleas fall on, on self-loathing ears. They hate him. They hate themselves. Their punishment for him is to castrate him live on TV. So another you know questionable use of TV. <laughs> yeah. um, the media has done it again. We talked about that. Depot, though, at the last second swoops in. Another savior moment for Depot. Way to go. And he appeals to the proto-mother just in time and tricks her in one page's worth of rhetorical trickery, I guess. It's like another absurd quick development. She spent, <laughs> uh, like, how many? She's given $78 billion births and now she's just rated like forget about him but anyway he convinces <laughs> yeah. her that she never loved him he reveals the Incal like oh you didn't never love john don't worry about him you love the Incal. she then of course does a complete 180 goes and saves the day the couple together that old couple to fool and and what proto mother they trick the to fool civilization trick persuade them to fall into theta sleep so now we're ready to go any thoughts on that final turn i mean another great moment of characterization at play here really strong stuff <laughs> yeah uh well depot sure like that's true depot might be the most interesting and deep character in the story we've i've undersold him on the whole i think i've i should have talked more about depot's development yeah who knew that concrete seagulls could be so what a win yeah, they're they're just so profoundly uh, philosophical in a lot of ways, and, and really sympathetic and empathetic. Like, gotta watch out for your pets. You know, if we even want to call him <laughs> that, he's fully sentient. I have a hard time calling him that, but he also performed Jesus miracles. So yeah, yeah. There's that. Okay, we're all assembled now. The band of heroes is back together. I think at Tear Twenty One because all the council old dudes shows up there to like give him a sign off. I don't know where they are. It really doesn't matter because we're entering the zone of metaphor now. Anyway, and the, the the worlds between worlds, you know, like pre or sub atomization. So with the Incal, they descend one final time into the actual heart of darkness. Everyone. They use the power of every human being sleep to join up. The subconscious, obviously, they're entering a realm of symbolic subconscious fighting anyway, so fitting enough, that's the power source. <laughs> um, I think the best moment, maybe, of the whole graphic novel, frankly, happens here. They are at first lured away, and the darkness tries to destroy them by showing them a twisted version of a fear that they all have. However, John is immune to this randomly because he met the proto-mother once, so way to go story, just waving that away. He is the yeah. conduit for goodness, and so he saves them from these fears. He turns them all around. Of course, as soon as he does that, they all self-sacrifice to the Incal, and it appears legit. They all immolate themselves and happily die for the in-call. The only one who is a skeptic is John. He's left alone. He's inside the in-call once more. The in-call informs him that they've defeated darkness because of the sacrifices, but he's alone now. He then meets Orr, O-R-H, which is the godlike being or just God. It's a massive man with a beard. <laughs> the, the classic <laughs> God. I was thinking about doing a joke to open this podcast about how God's a woman or whatever. Have you ever heard that kind of joke? Yeah, yeah. A classic twist. So, no, this is man, this is big man beard god. <laughs> the old, the you know, the biblical. And made of gold. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of, I mean, of course. They had all that ink left over. Anyway, so he meets with Orr. <laughs> Orr created everything, or at least this universe or this version of things. Um, the Ankal, who's clearly just turned into Jesus, is a literal rebirth child, and Orr calls him his child, um, is going to start a new timeline, a new plane of existence, basically. While John, in the meantime, unfortunately, doesn't get much of an explanation, just gets launched back to the beginning of this whole story in Suicide Alley, and is just told ambiguously by Orr to remember things as best he can when he's falling back into that scene everyone's mentioning that he should remember this and so who knows it's not exactly the same moment because the first one started when before he jumped so it's not quite the exact same thing but it's really close 
So the story kind of ends where it began. John alone falling back down Suicide Alley. Um, man, yikes. Okay, lots to unpack here. You want to talk about the final frame then? Yeah, I was going to do like a a back and forth here just to look at like the differences and why it's significant or not significant. So like the um the final panel he's on he's got on um, a triangle on his shirt, right? There's um the the dialogue boxes are mostly the same though, but there are some people who yeah. are not there that were in the panel for um, the uh, the original on on page ten, and then also there are many depots. There's concrete um, seagulls instead of birds, instead of the doves that we see at the beginning, which I thought was really interesting too. I was like, look at these depots. I didn't know that there were so many depots, but then when I looked at the first panel, I was like, those aren't depots. the The first panels are actually like doves or something. Concrete doves yeah. must have been, I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, there, I was. I just found the difference is really. There are some veins we can mine here on the page before when he's talking to Baby Jesus slash in call Baby Jesus. He, <laughs> he does tell the fool. We we haven't done a ton of close analysis of some of the dialogue just because it's. I mean, we've not, we've not slammed best, yeah. it repeatedly because it is very exposition heavy, repetitive, rather characterless. But we can dig in here. There, the baby says, "You are the eternal witness, the drop of water that will never become one with the great ocean," which is a really frightening prophecy or indictment or something it's like jesus man you're not even you're like subhuman or something right um, and then and so john i believe in the next boxes is, is being is just trying to persuade he's not being sincere but he says like i understand i get it like help me i take me in i want to be with you don't like yeah i'm ready and i take that to be lying um because of his terrified look in his eyes but yeah. the baby basically says like no you're gonna have to learn something you have to you have to do this all again to learn from this just remember and then again the implication of that i think is like he's gonna relive roughly the same thing again more or less right i you know of course cyclical circle circular things are in some sense satisfying i just think that i would need to have seen more there's just so much plot stamping all over his character development in this story. Like, I get that he's not really supposed to develop, that he's base, that he's, you know, immoral, maybe too simple minded, all that stuff. But like, he also delivers time and again and keeps doing things to move the plot. So it's just, I don't know. This didn't hit me as a deeply like dark or sad moment for John. Cause it's, none of these people really rose to the level of character anyway, in my mind, they were just weird, sci-fi archetypes bouncing off each other while really beautiful wild stuff happened so i don't know yeah. did did you want to talk about the final panel because it hit you in a in a certain way no i was just like curious about what um the the ending itself wasn't like something that was like super huge to me or anything yeah, like that i was yeah. like okay well yeah i mean maybe that explains why with the he um we don't see him change ever. And that's why it's so like, of course, you know, over the top with the same exact reactions and the same exact everything. He just doesn't change. Yeah. Right. So I was like, okay, that is why that's in there. Um, but I was just curious about like, why are there now like little depots and, and like, why are there these differences? If he has to like relive his, like what happened and I guess adjust according to like what he remembers mm -hmm. 
but why is why is the setting itself different why are there depots why why do the buildings look different why is it that yeah the people are different like i i'm just i i guess i was just like not sure what the significance of those different of those particular differences were for him or for yeah, if there's some kind of symbolic readings to be done there, I'm not the one. Because I'm caught up on just other aspects of this. It just felt like he, his character was clearly not meant to progress much. He's being, in some way, maybe punished or is separate. Yeah. It, again, if the reading is maybe, if the baby's interpretation is super literal, like that ocean metaphor of just kind of, you were never like the others, you know? It's like, you're, you're just not a person who's ever going to integrate. You just are stuck observing and having things happen to you and you're never gonna like do you think the other characters in some way bonded or came together more than him like no it, it's also shallow that it's like if he was a witness where were the connections yeah <laughs> like yeah what is against whom is he a witness like the other people just kind of let the plot wash over them too because it was such a chaotic shit show of a plot like yeah at what moment were they deeply connecting to each other they all just speak exposition at each other and then occasionally complain or, or like remark and that's it so they feel like npcs in a video game or something it's bizarre that's a good comparison that's exactly what it felt like yeah all right let's i'm going to end with one celebration before we get to our final segments then the nightmare scenes i thought were probably the best realized moments of this whole thing even though the character traits that they were exposing had nothing to do with their characterization to me (laughs) that was it's like kind of a fundamental failure but at least it revived some some disagreements like how kill and um not anima but the what was her amok like how they had some deep resentment of each other they were both kind of the aggressors the the you know protectors their disfigurations he bursts into a crowd of wolves she she turns into kind of like a centipede with claw knife hands or something again interesting to recall that her kind of slippery powerful she was like running a secret kingdom she basically faded for the whole rest of the story though so to recall that at the end kind of in a way was her power and his aggression it was his aggression came up once or twice but that whole transition for her it just was visually striking Um, It was a good example of there's just not a lot of dialogue on these pages. Thank God her, you know, they they (laughs) grunted each other. The page when Anima devolves into the kind of the blood boiled old woman and she like ages in rapid succession. I thought that for John, having to John to witness that, that's obviously his number one fear of her since he just wanted her to be a beautiful woman that they could run off together with. But yeah, the color of it, the, the progression in those couple panels showing her body change and like explode with pus and stuff. It was disgusting. It also like the next page too, he's overlooking all the horror it, it shows that, I, I don't know, I didn't get afraid. It was obviously grotesque and, you know, gross. But I thought of all the moments of, like, intimate detail, because we, we've talked about how much Mobius does or how well he did with, like, big scenes. I thought this yeah. was the best, like, intimate scene in the whole book, maybe. <laughs> Just the detail of it, the progression of it seeing the bird turn into a chicken and then get its head just ripped off I thought that was a like a goofy funny little thing considering that we also earlier mentioned he was probably the best realized character to see yeah. him reduced to like literally just meat you know back into his most bird like meat state I don't know it, it those worked for me even if I didn't fully get on board with them as like symbol symbolic readings or metaphorical ones the art I thought just f- clicked perfectly there yeah I it's really well done the and so gross like i 
I oh, yeah. kind of like cringed as I was looking at each picture and I was just like, uh, but it's meant to make you do that. It's meant to be so grotesque and just create this reaction in you because it's it's their fears it's their worst fears or whatever and yeah the meta baron's yeah. fear was super weird i was like he never once mentioned anything about the ear thing or about his fear yeah, of like the technology a, affecting him so i was like yeah. what is this <laughs> yeah he even uses it earlier with when saloon is still just we assumed his son which is not right but he has like some kind of super speed technology built into his body or quit and like they use his ship early on and they never complain like i didn't get that at all these hit me so cold it, it yeah. did make me wonder if i rushed through some parts earlier because like i said there, there were moments of dialogue in this where i just thought i'm gonna you know soak in the pictures and just kind of skim this but i'm glad you didn't pick up on that either because that also felt random to me it was very random i was like i don't I remember seeing it on his head. There was no explanation about it. I did not. Un- I did not understand that is yeah. like the reason that he was so powerful as as a mercenary was because he had right. these like kind of upgrades or whatever. But like, because that was never made clear. At least like in my reading. So yeah, they. I just remember them mentioning when they trained John. He because he complains is why doesn't the Meta Baron just do this? Because he's already super powerful. The you know, power yeah. levels are very video gamey moment back then. <laughs> yeah. But and they give some reason. I forget he's busy or is doing something else. But they they make insinuations that he's super powerful. We just he's oh. o- most often sitting in a computer terminal. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. We know That's that his... he's the best. Um, yeah. Mercenary, um, but okay like and and we saw his fast reaction time and everything but right um, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's connected to like the thing that's in his ear so it was just like weird i don't know the the only person in this whole story that made any goddamn sense was the garbage king who rightfully claims that he won the competition and then it's true because the ink call cheated and had john fly to the top the other characters literally comment on it in the moment they're like i don't know if that's cheating and then so later of (laughs) course when he's like enslaved cleaning up the eggshells he makes a comment again he's like i've i've been wrongly done by this whole you know happening he's the only character that makes any damn sense in this whole book (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, pouring out for him okay let's uh, wrap this pot up with any with a couple not with any with a couple of random uh, segments we have planned they're not random um let's talk about critical assistance we do like to end our book club episodes with some details from other critics or blogs or reviews or basically somebody else we like to get some outside opinions see what other people thought amanda why don't you start us off with your critical assistance what'd you bring what do you want to discuss yeah just a, a couple of points um i got this from world comic book review and it's called The Inkle Review by Gregory Basor. Mm-hmm. Um, super short review, um, and but I learned a lot. Like, I, I hadn't really made the connection to Fifth Element, um, oh, but yeah. once it was pointed out to me, I was like, oh, derp, Amanda, like, of course. like <laughs> Big um, time. Yeah. Uh, so here's a quote from that. Um, as stellar as Mr. Hodorowski's writing is, the even bigger standout for the Inkle is the groundbreaking art by Mobius. Mobius is an iconic artist. His clean yet complex style captures the eye and draws readers in, especially his sprawling futuristic cities and lush, bizarre alien landscapes. Mobius's designs have been cited as influencing highly successful Hollywood motion pictures such as Blade Runner, The Matrix, and the Star Wars prequels. 
Um, mm-hmm. So the initial thing that I took from this was as stellar as Mr. Hodorowski's writing is. I was like, stellar? <laughs> no, no, no. The sta- the standards might just be low for graphic novels or something or comic. I don't know. I will admit that some of the comics that I have loved over the years are like I would say I always call them graphic novels because I when I buy them they are in they're in full novel format. I think I feel like comic is the anyway. It's more of like a publication word. The, same thing, different terms. I, I do find that some of the writing has to be a little more blunt. Um, obviously because the poetics are in the page <laughs> so uh, often the graphic novels i've bought it's because of the art first i'm a very art first graphic novel purchaser like that's where my intrigue and interest goes and yeah. so yeah i don't know if i've ever been blown away by very much writing in graphic novel form honestly because it, it is by definition kind of has to be functional it doesn't get to do the fun interesting poetic lifting um that that comes in the art and then obviously like i think they storyboard together a lot of those teams so it's you know however it's presented the the layout of the panels whatever the flow is and all that i think that's a collaborative thing usually so that mm-hmm. part of the storytelling goes to both but i yeah i agree with you what what writing was stellar here Ugh, not not for me yeah especially like uh we read my favorite thing is monsters which was both written and drawn by the same person and like the writing in that I found actually quite good. We talked a bit about the writing in that, and it's it's yeah. very different from what we've just read. <laughs> First person narrator can help solve a lot of that because she actually yeah. had a voice and had a distinct point of view that was unique and weird and at times compelling and stuff. So yeah, that I think that's I mean, this is just trying to do so much story and plot and setting changes all the while you don't really know which character to to get the point of view of it just jumps yeah. around so much it's just chaotic <laughs> yeah so yeah um but i did agree with the the idea of like how amazing mobius's art is because yeah definitely yeah. It, uh, every panel there was something to look at there was something that you could study there was a detail that could reveal something about the world or about Mm -hmm. the the people in it and like when we were talking about uh in the previous episode we were talking about the the garbage king and like just looking at the way that they're dressed and the way that they're um covered in this like muck and dirt and and it's just I don't know. I, I his artwork is what I I love the chaos of the story in a lot of ways. I don't care for the fact that there was not a whole lot of like characterization um and that that there were just massive leaps of faith as far as like the plot line and stuff. Oh yeah. But uh uh but the the I think artwork is what really tied everything together for me because without that the world building would have just fallen flat for me in a lot of ways. Right. Um, right. Because there was just not a whole lot of exposition about that, which I appreciated uh, in some ways, and, and in other ways I was just like, okay, well, it's good not to over analyze and over explain certain elements of a world when you're, you know doing sci-fi and fantasy but also there are some times when if it's important to the plot or if it's important to whatever it's kind of like maybe you should take a little extra time <laughs> to explain yeah. that yeah that's but, for yeah, sure i could see i could see why mobius's uh designs have have really influenced a lot of sci-fi 
for yeah for, for Hollywood. So I wasn't Defin- surprised. Definitely, and I think it was. I know I said this in the wreck, but it's why I picked it. I don't. I didn't know who Hodorowski was before or after this. Really, I, he was associated with a, an attempt to make Dune once, and I, but I've never dug into that. That's not a thing I've explored. I bought this yeah. because I know who Mobius is, and like have a yeah. couple other books he's drawn. I also learned critically today while just searching the internet because there is a there's a both a sequel and prequel to this. So Hodorowski kept exploring it. It is technically then the property is associated with him. It's like his vision, I guess, his idea, his world, because Mobius doesn't draw either of those. So I immediately, because it's funny, they were like in my online checkout cart. And then I was like, let's click at the art. And it's like, they each have different artists. So all three have different ones. I was like, oh, I'm not buying these. Like, not going to do it. (laughs) Because of all the things to propel me, it's not like, I'm not more curious about what the Meta Baron goes and does now. (laughs) I don't need to know more about like what John DeFool is doing. I, it was just like Mobius draws in such a compelling way. And so yeah. without that stuff, I don't know. Maybe I'll come back to the world. It had its moments for sure. I think some of the inventiveness was pretty stellar. I think if it never would have left Terror 21, it probably would have been a thousand times a better story, but less, maybe less wild and fun and strange. Like, who knows what we would have talked about. But right. yeah, the world building, I I love the chaos, but I love the mess. But I don't know if I want to, you know, live in it longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any um, other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the final thing is um, The Inkle is a work of brilliance that anyone who appreciates great sci-fi or the comics medium in general should read. Aside from the eye-opening look into a large link, the cultural chain of inspiration, the work is worth a look in and of itself. The expansive mix of grand stakes and gutter humor are a treat to behold and the art truly stands the the test of time so i agree i i enjoyed this and i think that it's 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 something that i would recommend um with the caveat that like hey if if you don't mind massive plot hole type things yes then you should read this like and enjoy the art and just you know uh embrace the chaos <laughs> totally that is the story um yeah and, and when he um when the writer mentioned the the gutter humor i was like i guess i could pick up on some of that yeah okay that makes sense so um, it had little bursts yeah so i yeah i think that it it is a, a treat to behold as he says and, and i enjoyed it overall yeah, I would not bring up humor at all in my and it, you know of my first twenty descriptions of this, I would not have thought to mention humor. <laughs> like even when John, even when the story is kind of taking taking the um, a little punch at John for his foolishness and his you know baseness, even then yeah. it's not the funniest thing. I don't know. The funniest thing is him trying to rip the walls off the Golden Parliament before leaving <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, and and like gold is heavy, so I was just like. How how was he able to fit all this into one duffel bag? Like I know. And it's just like yeah. not Yeah. <laughs> Let it go. No, no, it's true though. It's a great it's a great point. It's hilarious. All right. Let's dig into my critical assistance. I tried to go to any website that was associated with comics was my thought here. Maybe yours was too, right? Because I, I took mine from Comics Beat, a website I've never used. But the review was thorough and like had a lot of quotes. And I'm not going to read them all. It's also a much longer review than I pulled from. Anyway, a couple, couple quick co- quotes. Uh, a casual read will reward you with explosive action, gratuitous nudity, and hilarious hijinks. But approaching with full and clear-minded attention will reveal deeper treasures. So... 
I, the gratuitous nudity, I don't, I mean, I guess gratuitous is very much in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. A couple of scenes, I felt like it probably could have got cut, maybe, but I don't, I didn't think, that was not the word that jumped out to me. The only moment that definitely felt gratuitous was when they destroyed the tech place on Tear 21 and Anima shows up in like a thong for some, on a rat. <laughs> I was yeah. like, okay, that was playing with some Conan the Barbarian imagery or something. But other than that, oh, I yeah, didn't think... Sure. It, like there's a sex scene of course but that's absolutely critical to both john's character and the plot like both at once so i yeah i don't know it didn't feel gratuitous to me yeah especially for sci-fi i feel like in sci-fi there's always sex like i mean you can't it's just a part of the genre <laughs> yeah it's, i mean so many mediums honestly it's, it's just like I, I don't know maybe i feel like i'm too prudish and not prudish enough sometimes maybe but that didn't it didn't feel gratuitous to me yeah, um, the, I didn't the, find it. The proto mother is often depicted topless, but that's for that's because she doesn't feel like shame or human. She just is there to reproduce every twenty five thousand years or what. So it's just yeah. I don't know. Again, it, there's definitely toplessness and female nudity or something. But and John, I think, is depicted as nude once or twice. His his proto son, they do show his genitals when he's like born out of the egg, but also he's just birthed from an. I don't. It, none of it hit me as like bizarre in the moment. I don't know. Um, yeah. A couple other things here. A couple other quotes. What's helpful is the style that Mobius infuses into the space opera with the strategic use of colors and textures to draw the eye and emphasize what's important. The mostly muted neutral palette uses naturally occurring earthy colors, except on certain characters who are out of their element, so to speak. It's almost as if the bright pops of color scream out that the interlopers don't belong and aren't part of this world. Small, repetitive tick marks from hatching patterns um, add further visual directive elements. It's a beautiful book, and I kept finding myself being lulled into a state of pleasant euphoria as my unfocused eyes took in each page. So a couple of those things work for me. I'd like to see more of the scenes analyzed with that pop of color unnatural thing. I That was not an association I made. I think he does it well to draw your eyes in a chaotic scene. Like I think he knows how to direct your attention, so to speak. But that, that description was a little specific. I, I think the lulled thing is, is such a key point, though, because it's what also makes the dialogue more irritating <laughs> when I would flip to a new page and saw that it was 90%, not 90% dialogue. That's absurd. But when it, when, it, when I knew every frame was going to have something to have to read, I did after a while kind of just think, I'm just going to do the images first and like enjoy the sequence and see what visual delights are here. So to me, it was actively in a sense, I became an, actively against some of the writing. It, it did get to that level for me. I uh, the the way that I ended up reading this is, I I would read through the narrative and then I would like pull back, and just like look at the page and the artwork and and try to like reconcile the those two parts. <laughs> Yeah, of the, the novel. So that's how I ended up reading it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think let's end here with this final quote from this author. Oh, I didn't say their name, by the way. It's from Comics Beat. It's a review of the ink call, which they call Mint Condition. And the author, sorry to do this now, but it's Louis Hlad, H-L-A-D. Sorry. I like to give credit where it's due, obviously. Um, there's some criticism here they have about, about John. Uh, their quick quote here, not much to say about it, but it says, um, in three volumes in, John is still as unlikable as page one, but unlikable in kind of a charming way, question? It's sort of like he's so damn terrible that you start to root against his evolution and revel in his continued wickedness. All I have to say to that is, that is what's on the page. I, he's not wicked, he's bland. Like, he's not interesting enough to be wicked. It's... 
He's all talk. Like the book never gives him a moment. The most wicked thing he does is like complain to Anima, and then but then he goes and does the thing anyway. There's no, yeah, Anima like, has total control over him. Like yeah. she's like, oh, that sounds like such a great idea. But first, we have to do this, and he's like, no, I'm not going to do it, and he does it. It's the, mo- it's the same thing over and over again. The most wicked thing he does in the whole story is the plot initiation, which is he like lies to the cops, which you can take or leave as an act of moral bad that some people might view as a moral good. <laughs> but anyway, the, that's and then he so he lies to him, and then also he attempts to like keep the call to himself and is like, I, I wonder what this is. Like, I'm gonna let's see what this will do for me. But then from then on, he's it's all talk, talk, talk. There's no interesting yeah. moment chapter where we get a little side adventure of his depravity it's anyway i that is just if that's wickedness like it's so bland all right this is the quote (laughs) i did want to end on though from the end of their review it's just real wickedness in some of the others too so like yeah the techno people who are like the guy who freezes the person's granddaughter that little subplot we didn't really talk about but yeah yeah turning her into stone then shattering her then they have their duel and they kill each other that i thought was kind of a potent moment or a poetic rather moment yeah like there's other things happening the politics the way we commented on this in part one but the way they turn on each other in the political sense and they like they don't have any allegiance yeah it's he's like the least of the moral concerns or something in this book (laughs) or should be Um, final quote from this person. It's just an illustration of the sheer volume of high concepts and unhinged mania that helps make this collection. So delightful. If you can suspend your rational mind and just hold on for the ride, the Encal delivers a lightning fast barrage of pure uncut creativity. It's not like anything you've experienced before. And the ending is guaranteed to hurt your brain, but like in a good way, other than the, the final lines, because I thought the ending was kind of limp and, it seems like something you could easily overanalyze just like any work of art (laughs) to me it did not deserve that i liked so many of the descriptions here i I, uh, the word unhinged is going to come up when we do the book wreck in a second um because i do think in the end that's what i'm going to remember about this it feels like they had nobody to ever tell them no or edit literally anything they made for this entire book obviously that can't be true but it feels that way yeah 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 it's uh Man, it did you ever watch like I'm sure you have like the um Star Wars the first 3 series and like not the original 3 but the prequel 3. The, oh. <laughs> with Hayden I saw them day and date. I've bought all the action figures. I would play the CD in my room and do the fights on my bed. I would reenact the fights with the action figures <laughs> and as I would listen to the soundtrack in my yeah. <laughs> like those were the ones that hit us when or well, we're not so generationally apart you and I, but that was like those were the ones that came out when I was like 11 or 10. Like that hit me in my age bone. Like I was primed up for those. So like those will canonically always be my Star Wars. I had seen and liked the other ones before, uh, like the original, I guess we'll call them the original trilogy. Like I yeah. had a toy, I had an ATAT toy or, you know, like I had seen them, but those, they're actually like a little more, I think too mature for me to fully get the plot. It's kind of like, I just knew cool space robot stuff and Darth Vader scary, but I, I don't think I fully comprehend them so the prequels is like when i started to understand the storytelling i i guess oh yeah so i grew up with the the originals like that was like a a yearly an annual thing we would watch it with my dad okay so watching the prequel ones with um with hayden christensen i i like was not a fan of that um oh yeah they're not good because 
They, they are not. <laughs> um, but um, mostly, I think uh, what I didn't like about it was that the um, the acting was so stiff and the characterization was just... I mean, it was just too much going on at the time, right? Um, the... So the the chaos that goes along with that, there was just like everything was moving along so quickly, but the the they didn't take the time to build the characters, and they didn't take the time to like uh, get us invested emotionally, like in anyone really. Um, yeah, that was that. I was thinking of that, and as I was reading this, it's it's like the same, the same issues and everything. So mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of really cool ideas in here. And I think that if you are totally fine with just like not trying to make this into like a story that is even comprehensible in some ways, um, right. <laughs> then this is so great. Just like with the the first three Star Wars um the, the prequel for the Star Wars movie, as long as you're not going to get caught up in the details of anything, if you just right. go with the flow and you're like, oh, okay, I get the general idea of what's happening, then it's totally fine as as a story. And it's the same here. So, yeah. But the, the pure uncut cre- creativity, like, I think that the creativity, yeah, it is very creative in a lot of ways. And I think that the art is, is definitely creative and beautiful. So, yeah, it's just, it didn't... It didn't detract enough from my enjoyment overall to make me be like, man, this is the worst story ever. Like, no, there was still stuff that I really enjoyed. And I think you have to admire that something like this can exist. I don't know. It's yeah, it's just so enticing and fascinating and definitely a mess in in a very true sense. But I think. It, it's weird because I almost want to say I like that we picked we've picked a couple things on the pod that are not like certified guaranteed masterpieces but are more mixed and we've had like mixed complicated reactions I will say I didn't pick this with that in mind at all I was just like I like Mobius this is sci-fi let's see <laughs> but I am kind of <laughs> glad that we picked it now looking at it holistically and just thinking like yeah this thing's kind of a kind of terrible but also just wonderful you just got to be the right yeah. person with the right mind going into it right so yeah. that's for sure. All right, let's wrap with our final segment for any book club endeavor, any any book reading endeavor. Really, we're going to induct something into the Lightly Literary Podcast Hall of Fame. We each are going to pick some kind of element from the story, anything we want, and induct it into that hall. Amanda, start us off. What's going in for this book, for the in-call? I thought the most obvious, which is it's the most complex plot line with the least amount of meaningful explanation. Okay. You think it did that well, then? Like, it's, it's a good example of how not to explain things. How not to over-explain certain things. Yeah, it's okay, other okay. sci-fi that I've, I've encountered, and even fantasy, like, it's, like, you know, chapters and chapters of exposition about the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that there are some places in here that could have used more explanation, but also I think that the art is what supplemented a lot of that for me, too. So, like... For sure. I was okay with it. No, definitely. And I think... There were some sublime moments of it in the first half of the book, too. Again, once it went intergalactic for me, uh, some of those arguments for some reason felt a little more shallow in my mind. I was like, I don't think it's... I know I praised it for this before, but I don't know if it's working now. (laughs) But definitely in the front half, for sure. 100% agree. I'm going to induct the... And I'll I'll give both credit. I I don't want to be so harsh on Hodorowski, a writer I knew almost nothing about, basically. I just like Mobius a lot, so I'm going to try not to be biased. But So I'll induct both, both of them. Uh, Battle scenes. I'm inducting the Incal's battle scenes. In a novel, 
because battles are so limited by point of view, typically, it's just not realized in all of its messy, almost poetic, operatic, soap operatic, beautiful chaos, just kind of like no one has that view of things. It's like in a, in a movie uh, depicting, let's say, a real war film or something, you either are up in the plane or you're on the ground. You're not like hovering at the perfect cinematic distance to witness all the madness and all the intricacies. So I think just its depiction of battle chaos I will definitely remember thinking back on this book in 10 years or or whatever. It'll be the thing when I pick it up off the shelf to peruse for five minutes. I'll be like, let me go back and see if I can find that really insane panel, that really insane one page of the gladiator fight or them invading the Star War, the War Star, whatever. Um, (laughs) It had other moments that were really sublime, but I just think that's when they really got the flow. And they frankly just let the dialogue go away for a little bit and just kind of like let some of the art work. And so, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm inducting. Nice. I like it. Yeah, definitely a worthy addition. I feel good about that. At least with the Hall of Fame thus far, I have we haven't had a book where I struggled to find something to induct. So feel strongly about the entry there. Before we wrap it up, any final thoughts on the in call before we just leave it behind and become children of the stars? <laughs> nope. All right, off to or we go. Is it or? Off to the or father we go to be resurrected and born anew, forged into new literary... I don't know. We're going to be literary rebirth, I guess, because we have new books coming up. If you did not dig this conversation, then I guess I understand, especially if you didn't read. My God, I can't even fathom what a <laughs> person listening to this who's never read this book thinks. Well, we just talked about for an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, basically, like, just what the hell yeah, is this book? <laughs> utter madness. Uh, but hopefully we made a compelling case. Anyway, we do have other books chosen coming up. So if you're interested in our future literary endeavors, Amanda will tell you about them. Yep, so the next one is um, Uncommon Types of Stories by Tom Hanks. Um, so these are, it's a compilation of, of short stories that he, the actor, actually wrote. Um, and then we have Jazz by returning author uh, Tony Morrison. And then we have um, a collection of kind of like essays. Um, and this is called World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments. And that is by Amy Nizuku Matatil. Gotcha. Do you want to spell it, maybe? Just in sure. case? It's, okay. it's a long one. Um, mm-hmm. She's she's actually a poet, apparently. Um, N-E-Z-H-U-K-U-M-A-T-A-T. H I L. Excellent. Okay. And that's a pretty short read too. That's like a sub 200, almost little vignettes about nature. It seems yeah, kind of cool. It's like little essays and, and expositions. And yeah. memo- it's almost like a memoir and essay format. Gotcha. So. Excellent. Yeah. We got some good ones. I'm excited about what's coming up then. I, Hopefully Tom Hanks will be a little bit of a come down because it does feel like we're coming off a bender with this one. I, I could use some more grounded. I mean, I hope it's inventive and weird and stuff, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I can't do more proper nouns. I can't do a proper noun a page anymore. I think it's like I need a bit of a come down too. I've been reading some sci-fi for my own pleasure kind of in the background. So I think it's, it's overload for me right now. I'm like, I need to back away, need to step away for a little while. <laughs> All right. Um, well, we appreciate you listeners as always. If you can rate us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, we do so appreciate it. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. Okay.